Let's get our Bibles out, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So we are, we took a little break from Saturate um, and uh, let it get below 157 degrees. And uh, now we're going to crank back up today and a month from now. And we should, we should be uh, about done with what God's called us to do, which uh, we didn't start this just to finish this. Uh, we, we started this to walk in obedience, and we started this to be a part of this. And I just want you to realize what a blessing it is to be a part of a church that uh, has brought the gospel to over 10,000 homes in our community, and so many people have been impacted by the gospel. We're so grateful for that and thankful for it. It's, it's, uh, it's not just something that we're trying to get through to get done. Uh, we are just blessed to be a part, and it's, it's just awesome. So thank you for uh, your prayerfulness and your faithfulness, and you're such a blessing and encouragement to me and the other pastors. We're grateful for you. And also, all you men that participated yesterday in work day, my goodness, what, a, what an incredible amount of work was done. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you can see in the back lot all the work that was accomplished. It was tremendous. And also, uh, while I'm thinking about it, in your worship guide, you see, I mean, you, I'm sure you all know by now, my son is getting married in a few weeks, so I'm super excited about that. And you're all invited to be a part of that. And I hope that you're able to come and, and celebrate with us. Um, it's just awesome. Two people that grew up their whole life in this church and known each other their whole life. And now they're about to become one in Christ. So that's exciting. The reason I'm mentioning this is because if you would take your phone, take a picture of that uh, QR code and then RSVP. Because it would be helpful. It would be helpful. Now... We all remember what happened when my daughter got married. Now, this ain't my daughter. This is my son. So this is Brian and Kim's problem. <laughs> Just saying. But I think when my daughter got married, I think we fed six or 700 people. Yeah. So it'd be nice if you let us know so they can prepare. They can prepare. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to, we're going to walk through this last part of uh, chapter 3 and, and the first part of chapter 4. And today and next week, I'm going to unpack some very practical truths that should be very helpful to you. Uh, should maybe explain some things. Should help you. Help you understand. Um, hopefully... I've been excited about uh, today and looking at this passage, and hopefully this will shed some light on some things for you as you uh, walk with the Lord in sanctification and you grow in the likeness of Christ. And so today and next week will be highly, highly practical. Amen. And you'll also know why I always pray for God to give us ears to hear. So let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be together. What a blessing it is to have family. Thank you that you didn't come and give your son for our 
salvation and then leave us here alone, but you indwelt us with your spirit. You surrounded us with your family. You engulfed us in your love. We are so grateful for what you have accomplished on our behalf, Lord. And so today we even now pray for those whom we'll encounter today that you will encounter through your word, Lord. There's no doubt people out there who are contemplating suicide today, whose marriage is falling apart today, whose children are wayward today, who has a loved one in ICU today. There are uh, innumerable difficulties in a lost and dying world, Lord, that we're all too familiar with. And we know the solution is you. The greatest need is not the solution to problems, but it's the solution to sin. And so we pray that you'd use today for your glory. We don't want any of it. It's all for you. We thank you in advance. If you'll give us ears to hear today, we'll rejoice in that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's begin in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what Paul is talking about in this section is he's talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he's saying that... The Old Covenant, the giving of the Ten Commandments, was a blessing, it was a gift, it was glorious, but it doesn't even compare to the gift of the New Covenant, of Jesus. And he's comparing these two, and and this is all in response to the false gospel that's trying to be uh, spread in the church at Corinth that he loves very much, that he's very concerned about. And so we've spent the last few weeks talking about uh, false gospels and the, and the consequences of them and what they cause and how they affect us and so on and so forth. And so, again, he brings this, this uh, differentiation between the old and the new back for us to realize some things about being a Christian. Now, if you have your listening guide, we want to understand that God didn't give the Ten Commandments for self-justification. He gave them for self-revelation. The reason that we, we have the law is because the law reveals what we truly are, who we truly are, reveals the, that, that we are fallen, sinful people. The problem is that throughout history, people have wanted to gravitate back to the law for self-justification. In other words, to think, well, if I can follow these rules then I'll be accepted by God. Or if I'm better at following the rules than other people, then I'll be accepted by God. Or whatever the case may be. And the point of the law was 
to reveal to us that none of us could stand under the weight of it. Nobody can obey the Ten Commandments, and the Bible says that if you're guilty of one molecule of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So when you think about uh, what Paul is saying here, I want you to realize that the Bible, this is just another example of the Bible teaching us about the Old Testament through the New Testament. We'll see in a few moments some scriptures where the Bible teaches us in the Old Testament about the New Testament, that all of the scripture is unified and it all works together to give us the full picture of the God who loves us and came to save us. You know, we have to realize that everything that happened then is pointing to what is happening now. In other words, just think about this for for a second. You've got Moses and the law, and then you've got in the old covenant, and then you've got Jesus and grace in the new covenant. And just think about how this works together. We We have the law coming on a mountain, Mount Sinai. We have this new covenant speaks about a mountain, Mount Zion. We have a man, Moses, in the old covenant. We have a man, Jesus, in the new covenant. We have a veil that's being talked about. Moses puts a veil on his face because the glory of God is shown on him. And he puts a veil because the people would get discouraged if they saw that the, the glory was fading. And so it talks about how he puts a veil on his face. Isn't that strange? Why, why a veil? Why not a sack? Why not a helmet? Why not a, think of a, why not a pot? Why not, think of all the things he could have put on his head. Why not nothing? But he puts a veil on his head. And then interestingly enough, we get to the new covenant. And what happens? There's Jesus on the cross. And the veil separating the most holy place rips from top to bottom. The veil in the old covenant. The veil in the new covenant. I just want you to see all of these things fitting together. You know, the tearing of the veil. The Bible says that the, the, the veil rips so that it gains. That veil was what kept people from entering into the holy of holies. Well, it signifies the removal of the separation between God and the people. So all of these things matter. So look at verse 12. So therefore, since we have such hope, Paul says, hope, the, the now that we're in the new covenant, we have hope. See, the old covenant couldn't bring hope because nothing you did lasted. Don't you understand? You can't have hope if, there's, if hope is based on a future event, Right? Hope is based on the future. Well, in the old covenant, there was no future. There was only the right now. So you sin, you you give a sacrifice for your sin, your sin is washed away, but then you have no hope for tomorrow because tomorrow you start all over again. You see, there's there's no hope in that. There's no confidence in whether or not we would see things come to pass in the old covenant. Now you contrast that to the new covenant. Where salvation comes once and for all. Where one all-sufficient sacrifice, the, the writer of Hebrews says, comes. To pay the penalty of our sin, past, present, and future. Every promise in Scripture guaranteed. 
I mean, if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. So Paul's talking about this hope. Look in Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is a covenant that is filled with hope. And when you're exposed to it at the moment of salvation, you realize what it, one thing that it does, it just births hope, living hope. 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection oh, of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you see that we are now, we have this inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's hope. That's the future event, the guarantee that we have, the realization that what God has done for us has permanent consequences. It doesn't solve our present condition. That's old covenant thinking. It secures our future position. And by securing our future position, you see, it empowers us. It gives us everything we need for today and the guarantee of what's coming in the future. And so Paul just wants us to see that since we have such hope, that's why we're bold. We're bold because we, our hope, we can't lose it. We have it. So what about this hope? He contrasts it, verse 13, but unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, this is super instructive. There's further explanation. Look down at chapter 4. Paul's going to give us more information. Verse 3. And when our gospel is veiled, now he's talking about his preaching in Corinth, or his preaching anywhere, it is veiled by, to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So clearly there's something going on. So first of all, we see in the Old Testament, we see how the Jews were blind. And the reason they were blind is because they, because they, didn't, they didn't see they didn't understand. They didn't receive the Old Testament. They can't see or understand the New Testament. They're, they're blind to it. They're veiled. So it's, it's blocking their ability to see, their ability to hear, their heart to receive. It's the veil, it says in verse 15, it lies on their heart. And then that's brought into the present in chapter 4 when Paul starts talking about his preaching and the same issue now let's talk about this i want to explain this so you, there's no confusion first of all let's just set the table here no person is ever saved ever until the holy spirit removes the veil that's what the bible just said we cannot come on our own that's impossible 
John chapter 6, no man can come unless the Spirit draws him. Verse 44, that's impossible. The, the Spirit of God has to lift the veil in order for a person to come, right? You with me? All right, but now let's think through this. Because if we stop right there, well, then we don't have a full understanding of what God wants us to see. You see, I think that we readily recognize this reality that we can't just, nobody can just wake up one day and think to yourself, you know what, today I'm going to become a Christian. It's, it doesn't work like that. You can't do that. You can't come without the veil being lifted. But if the veil is lifted, you're not forced to come. You got to think this through now. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord. You see that? You should underline that in your Bible. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice it doesn't say when one is turned by the Lord. You notice it doesn't say that? It says when one turns. See, salvation does not come simply through the cross of Christ. It comes through man's faith in what God did on the cross. The cross made salvation available. That's what it did. But then faith, our faith, makes salvation accessible. Now, the veil has to be lifted... But if the veil's lifted, one still has to place their faith. In other words, God, we'll talk a lot about this next week, but you know my illustration last week of the, the sailboats, God put us all in a boat with a mast and a sail, and he provides the wind. But he does not put the sail up for us. He doesn't do that. In order for you to sail, you put the sail up. And you can't put the sail up unless the veil is lifted. So in my little children's story that I shared with you, in other words, you could think of the veil being lifted as you and me seeing other people sailing and going, wow, that's what that pole is for? And then the veil's lifted and we can... Or some people see other people sailing and say, well, I don't want to do that. A person's never sailed, never saved until the Holy Spirit removes the veil. But a lifted veil is an invitation, not an obligation. And we have to understand how this works. We need to know this in our own lives, in the lives of the people that we love, in the, peop in the lives of the people around us, to be effective in evangelism, to understand even what we're going to do this afternoon. It's very important to understand how does this work? Here's how this works. I have a veil over my heart. The Spirit pulls the veil back, lifts the veil, and God speaks to me, which then gives me an opportunity to respond. And what happens if I respond? What happens if, if God lifts the veil 
and I respond to this invitation, I place my faith in Christ in response to this opportunity, then the veil is permanently lifted. Now, this is important for you to understand. It's permanently removed. See, the problem is not God's willingness to speak, but man's willingness to listen. So when the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You see that? You see that in your Bible? It's taken away. Now, what does that mean? See, all of this has great implications. All right, let's, let's, look, at the, let's look at one side, then we'll look at the other side. All right, one side is God never stops speaking to the lost. He never stops speaking to the lost. See, I think a mistake would be made if you think that every once in a while God speaks and then, you know, the veil is lifted or the veil, you know, or the veil's not lifted or whatever the case may be. And so it's these sort of every once in a while sorts of things. No. Look at verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. Just, let's just be simple, logical. Would there be a reason for the veil to remain if God weren't speaking? In other words, okay, you've got people separated from Christ, and the Bible says the veil remains. Why would the veil remain if God wasn't speaking? The reason for the veil to remain, the reason why the enemy wants to keep the veil in place is because God's always speaking. Think this through. See, God is not, God's not stingy with the gospel. He didn't, he didn't do everything he's done. Like we just sang about all these things, all these amazing things that God has done. All the ways that God has gone above and beyond anything we could comprehend. All the, the, the magnitude of the price that he's paid. And yet people have this mentality that somehow in light of all that God's done to make the gospel accessible, that God's somehow stingy in giving it out. Listen, he never stops speaking. Never. He's always speaking. Now, you should be thinking about this now because there's still some things that need clarification. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Hmm. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. If you keep reading in Romans 1, you'll see how God is, is, is continually barraging all people with the reality of himself. But then there's the other side, which is God never stops speaking to the saved. He never stops speaking to the saved. 
Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's permanent, taken away. See, furthermore, look down at verse 18. This will be next week, but look at verse 18. But we all, who's we all? We all, all true believers, with unveiled face. See, our face is unveiled. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's not a one-time deal. It's a continuous it's a continuous experience for those who are in Christ beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord or being transformed. You see this is an ongoing process into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. So how does this what if the veil is lifted and you don't respond? Because God's always speaking to the lost and so if the veil is lifted and you don't respond, well then, well, that's, that's no problem because he's always speaking. And so you can, you can always respond at a later time. Is that how this works? And, and how, does, how, does the, how is this influence we were talking about over the last month or so, about how there's this constant uh, battle that we're that's we're waging on earth God's already won the the war but we're we're in this battle of influence where God moves us in a position of influence and then Satan tries to to stop it and, and block it and so on and so forth remember the parable of the sower and so you've got one consistent thing in the parable and that's the seed it's it's a parable about the, the spreading of a seed, but it's a consistent same seed that goes on a variation of soils and what happens to that same seed on different soils. And Jesus explains it in Matthew 13 to his disciples. He says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Now, what does it mean when he doesn't understand it? It means he doesn't understand what? The seriousness of it. The urgency of it. He doesn't take to heart what, what, uh, the, what is hanging in the balance. So then the, when the Holy Spirit comes and lifts the veil, we have two options. In other words, when the seed comes, we have two options. We can yield to the voice of God and surrender and find forgiveness and salvation. Or we can reject and then when that happens, or we can just hesitate and say, no, that's, you know, I'm not going to respond to that. See, sometimes we think that, that what the Bible's talking about is always just outright rejection. Well, well, doing nothing is outright rejection. See? And so what happens is, is that we, we reject and then the enemy comes and reinstitutes the veil. And we're blind. Now see, some of you now, some light bulbs should be coming on. Because some of you have people that are in your family that you've been praying for for years. And you're just bewildered as to how in the world can they not see this? Because they're blind. And now you know what's going on. You, you understand that the veil comes up and they have opportunity. They reject it and then they're, it's blind again. And, then, and on and on it goes. Up and down and up and down. 
So does this mean that we have unlimited opportunities to respond to God? See, I want you to understand that what's happening is God is consistently speaking. And it's this veil, it's this lifting and unlifting of the veil that is creating these gospel moments. It's not, the, it's not speaking, not speaking, speaking, not speaking. I don't believe that to be the case at all. And so do we have unlimited opportunities to respond to God? Well, what does the Bible tell us? Hebrews chapter 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest there be in any of you a hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. Notice it says departing. You see, it's departing. It's an ongoing process, isn't it? So what's, what, we're, what the warning here is, is that over the course of time, in other words, that departing, rejecting, creates this hardness of heart. Every time you reject, your heart gets a little harder and a little harder and a little harder. And so then, you know, your opportunities to respond get a little less and a little less because your heart is hard. You see, you can't depart from something that you've never seen. You can't, you can't reject something that you've never, you've never been exposed to. You're de- they're departing. See, in, when the writer of Hebrews says, beware, brethren, he's talking about, he's not talking about saved people. He's talking about people who are around saved people, who, who act like saved people, who a lot of people think are saved or whatever the case. And the warning is, listen, you've been rejecting, you've been departing, and the warning is you better stop doing that because your heart is getting harder. You see the, you see the point I'm making? Look at it in, in, in Romans 1 again. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. They became futile over time in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, it's a, it's a process. Here's what you need to understand. There's a compounding consequence to rejecting. This is the warning of Scripture. That as this veil is being lifted and unlifted, what's happening is, is there are consequences to, to rejection over time. That God's speaking, the problem's not God speaking, the problem is our hearing, which is why I always pray for God to give us ears to hear. Because if He doesn't give us ears to hear, what's going to happen? We're not going to hear. I mean, I'm talking to... To, what's on my heart is not only for saved people to hear what God wants to, to say to us, of course, but I'm never assuming, I'm not, I'm not naive to the fact that there's lost people in this room right now. 100%. Every time I've ever preached a sermon, there's always been people who were separated from God in the room. Some of them think they're not, some of you think you're not, but you are. 
And some of you know you're separated from God. That's not new information. And so these, there's consequences to rejecting. And there's multiple places in Scripture where we see this. And, and, and sometimes they're familiar places. And so we, we don't scratch our head as we should and think, wait a minute, now what is going on here? What in the world is going on here? See, the same thing that, that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1 happens in churches all the time. Because you've been so, you've been so uh, you know, insulated by exposure to the gospel that you somehow have just made this intellectual leap that all this exposure has just gotten on you and so you're okay. You know, like because you sat next to somebody who had the flu, you got the flu. Well, salvation doesn't work like that. You don't catch salvation from other people. And so by being in the proximity of salvation, that doesn't have anything to do with you. Think think about this. Think about Judas. Think about, let's think specifically about Judas just before he betrays Jesus. They come to the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper. Let's think about the, the order of the events that happen. And so, now remember, I'm talking about a God who's always speaking. And the problem is a listening. A, the problem is a seeing. The problem is this veil. So they go in the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper. And what's the first thing Jesus does before they sit down to celebrate the Passover meal? He washes the disciples' feet. And in doing so, he washes Judas's feet. Now, he washes Judas's feet, knowing what Judas is about to do. Why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus is telling him yet for the millionth time, I love you. He's giving him a chance. I love you. See, one thing you'll, you'll pick up on quick if you read the Bible and pay attention to what you're reading is that God gives people chances over and over and over in Scripture, even though the sovereignty of God gives them the ability to know that they won't receive it. But He still gives it to them. The rich young ruler, there's multiple examples of that. Jesus goes to places, and He doesn't heal everybody. He doesn't perform miracles with everybody, just certain people. Well, what I'm saying is you see this, this differentiation in the way God deals with people. So he, he washes His feet and shows Judas that He loves him. See, before he teaches him anything, he touches him. Oftentimes God does that to the lost. And then remember when they're sitting there during the meal in Mark chapter 14. And the Bible says, in this, uh, Jesus says, this is what he says. Listen, he says, the Son of Man, for the Son of Man goes it is, as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Then he says, it would have been better for you, for that man, if he had not been born. Hmm. Now, why is Jesus saying this? In other words, Jesus already knows what's going to happen, right? Of course he does. Yet he, say, he says this. So why does he say this? 
He's giving Judas another opportunity, isn't he? And why, why add it would, have been, it would have been better for you to have never been born? You see the compounding consequences of proximity? You see what Jesus is alluding to here? And so he makes this statement. Of course, everyone is confused as to what's going on. But, you know, Judas knows. Jesus is saying to him, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. So then the next morning, you know, like 5, 6 a.m., they usher Jesus out, arrest him, take him to go before Pilate. And then there's this sequence of events. In Matthew 27, we see where, you know, in the morning, the chief priests and the elders who plotted against Jesus. They want to put him to death. And then Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Now, now, now look. Look at what the Bible says. And so then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now, Let's think about this for a second. Why would a man, let's just think logically, why would a man who spent three years with Jesus, he watched Jesus forgive every person that asked for forgiveness. He watched Jesus forgive prostitutes and criminals I mean, he forgave the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, that Judas was aware of that. He forgave everyone that came to him asking for forgiveness. So why didn't Judas just go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness? In other words, think of what he had seen. Think of what he had been exposed to. Like, imagine the the level of grief I mean, some of you don't have to imagine this. But think about this. Think of the desperation and the, and the, 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 the horrible, crushing weight that brings a person to the, the point of suicide. The, the degree of hopelessness. He had seen Jesus... Forgive every person who asked for it. There's no place where Jesus denied forgiveness for anyone who genuinely wanted it. He knew that. He'd seen that. And yet, he ties a rope around his neck, ties it to a tree, and jumps off a cliff. He's blind. He's blind by his rejection. His heart is so hard. Don't you see? All of those times, all the veil had been lifted in his life. Think of the amount of, of lifting of the veil that had occurred in three years in his life. And his heart was so hard. He was so blind 
but he just hanged himself. Massive exposure and massive rejection. That's why Jesus said it would have been better if you had never been born. He's alluding to the fact that it would have been better had you not seen all the things that you'd seen, heard all the things that you heard. Rejection has consequences. See, God never quits speaking, but we have to be serious about hearing, about responding. In Hebrews chapter 10, again, the writer of Hebrews says, talking about the new versus the old covenant, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Why is it outraged the Spirit? Because the Spirit's lifting. You see, you've, you've disgraced the Father because you've rejected His plan. You've disgraced the Son because you've rejected His, his sacrifice. And you've, re, re, you've disgraced the Spirit because you've rejected His invitation. You've rejected the whole Trinity. You see? All of us were born with a veil. We're born sinners with a heart veiled. The Holy Spirit lifts it. it gives, he gives us opportunity. And in that moment, we either step up or we step back. And if we step forward, if we move towards God, then what happens? Then the clarity of Christ enters into our life and remains and the clarity goes, just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Once the veil is removed, it's removed. It's removed. If you say no, then the enemy puts the veil back. Will you get another chance? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know. All I know is what the Bible says. And I know that whatever the Bible says, it says for a reason. So what is the reason that the Bible says things like, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why do you think God says that? God knows that he's an ever-speaking God. He's not saying that because his speaking may be there or not be there. It's because your ability to respond may be there or not be there. It's because of the hardness of our heart, you see? I mean, look, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians 6 in a few weeks. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why does the Bible say that? Why? Because the God who gave everything to make that opportunity available to me and you is trying to do everything 
to get us to realize what hangs in the balance whenever we hear the gospel. So we don't assume, we don't assume that because people are in church that they're saved, because people say that they're Christians, that they are. Now that would be a devastating mistake to make. All the disciples were sitting around the table celebrating Passover with Jesus. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't know who it was. Don't you understand? Nobody stood up and said, well, I've been suspecting Judas all along. No. It's very understandable that you would be here today. And that you're the only one that knows right now why, it, the, why your heart rate is elevated. Well, why are you... Why are you feeling pressure right now? See, there's other people in the room that feel no pressure at all. But you feel pressure. Why? The veil's lifting. God's speaking to you. What are you going to do? to go out of here again? Just talk yourself out of it? Even though you have no explanation for why you feel the way you feel right now. It might have been 25, 30, going on 30 years ago, but I still remember that feeling. I didn't respond the first time. I almost ripped the pew in pieces while I was gripping that thing so tightly. Didn't respond the second time. But it didn't take long before I couldn't take it anymore. And I can remember just being in the back of that little church thinking to myself, what, what is wrong with me? I feel like I'm, I'm about to have a heart attack. Clearly something's wrong. Clearly God's trying to tell me something. If this didn't pertain to me, then I wouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling right now. See, I can't make you feel convicted. I can't do that. No one can do that. Only God can do that. So, so if you're thinking, well, it's, it's just Pastor Tony. It's just the way you're making this sound. No, it is not. It has nothing to do with me. If you think I can elevate your heart rate, you're insane. I can't do that. I can't make you feel uneasy. I can't make, I can't do that. God's doing that. He's calling to you. And I don't even know what he's saying. But I know he's calling you unto himself. See, he's always speaking. So he's speaking right now to, to, to every saved person in the room. 
And he's speaking to some of the lost people in the room. But you see, here's what I also know. There may be a lost person here this morning and you feel fine. You see? You know you're lost, but your heart rate's not up. You know why? Because God's not speaking to you. Your heart is veiled. And so I can't change anything about that, but I want you to be aware of the fact that if that's you, that is the ultimate, scariest place you could ever be. Ever. And I also want you to know that if God's not speaking to you and you come down here and tell me you want to get saved or one of the other pastors, nothing's going to happen. Nothing. You're just going to say some words and make some commitment, but it's not going to change a thing. And so some of you, your heart is beating right now, and the reason why it's beating is because you, in your own strength and power, prayed some superstitious prayer, made some human commitment, and it wasn't as a result of God speaking to you, and so that's why you're not saved. And so the same thing I say every week. My goodness. If that's you, why in the world would you not respond to God? Nothing would make the people in this room rejoice greater. Nothing makes us happier than to see God moving in each other's lives. So whether that's to receive him as salvation, to get baptized, to, or whatever else it is, you need to do business with God. Because when, when the veil is lifted, it's time to move. It's time to act. It's not time to wait. Let's stand and bow our heads. Now there's your last blanks. So all you OCD people be freaking out. You, you can't move until you get completion. There you go. God didn't save us to get love. He saved us to share His love. He didn't save us to get joy. He saved us to share His joy. That's what the invitation is.